Hey there, all you vamps and vampettes. Time to rise up out of your coffins. We are the Nosferadudes. Adventures in time and space. Told in future tense. All radio is dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Look, there comes one of them now. I'm Kyle. And I'm Brad. And we're the Nosferatu's, and tonight, Brad, what are we talking about? Uh, The Exorcist. (laughs) We're talking about William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, as directed by William Friedkin. And so Brad mentioned on the Chopping Mall episode that this possibly is going to be a crossfire episode because, Brad, how do you how do you feel about this movie? (laughs) I don't like it. (laughs) And meanwhile, for me, um, I I have it's not it's not my favorite movie, but I you really like this movie, though. I watch it a lot. Like yeah, I watch I know it you do. a You've lot. You've always been into this movie because yeah. uh, it's almost like one of those horror movies that I that I find like sort of meditative. Like I I can watch it and just take it in, and I see like all these like little things each time. These interesting I notice these interesting things. Meditative because it's so slow. No, no, because there there's something um, like. For me, like for some people, it's Rosemary's Baby. For some people, it's The Omen. For me, The Exorcist is the, like, you know, you love a good bad guy. You know, you got your Dracula, your Frankenstein, your Freddies, your Jasons, your Michael Myers. But this, like, it, we're talking about the ultimate bad guy. We're talking about the devil himself. And that's, I, I like that. I like that idea of like men going up against, you know, great evil. And for me, like, whereas I know, I know for a lot of people, you know, there are people out there that think it's a boring movie. There are people that love it. It always makes like the top, top 20, top 10. It's always number one is the scariest movie of all time. It's not. Right. Right. And, but. For me, it's one of these things where it's uh, like for the same reason. Like, yes, I like I love Cthulhu, Lovecraftian mythos type stuff. Yep. The Exorcist and movies like this are Cthulhu mythos without the tentacles. You're talking about a great ultimate evil coming from another dimension of reality, bleeding into our reality and taking over the body of someone innocent or you know whatever and then it's like up to men to try to step in and do something about it and i find i always find those stories like when they're told well like that's the difference between this and some some other crappy possession movie this is told really well this is a well crafted film dealing with these big subjects and i find it very powerful so that's where i'm coming from Okay. Now, <clears throat> okay. So, <sighs> I'm not a total curmudgeon about the movie. I have um, 
as we were talking about before we jumped on, uh, I actually have this on DVD. So, um, I, I I had enough respect for it where I I bought it on DVD. Yeah, you put your money down at one point. <laughs> so right. So well, a couple of things that I want to make clear too before I start crapping all over this movie. Um, I think the acting is phenomenal in this movie. I really do. I mean, everybody is good. Oh, Max yeah. von Sydow is good. Jason Miller's good. Um, the actress that plays the mom um, might have had the best. And um, uh, Ellen Burstyn. Blanking Burstyn, right? Yeah. Um, but she might have had the best performance in the whole movie. Quite frankly, she's when a, I was watching like a raw this, nerve. Other, she's a raw nerve she, through the whole thing. Well, she just said she was, you know, and maybe it's because I'm older now and I'm a parent that you identify more with her because, you know, what would you do if this was going on with your child and how she, how she, like just she evolved through the movie because she started to see this stuff. It's not like Reagan was telling these tales and no one believed her right i mean right. she like she was in the room when there, there's a point where you know, she, when the, she can't deny something is seriously something's up wrong right they they run all those tests on her and stuff like that but she knows something was wrong she's just following the advice of the doctors and it's what you do it's what anybody it's would do that's because that's what you would do right exactly but she knows something is way off like this is not you you're gonna do these tests on my daughter but this, i don't think that this is gonna help like yeah. i like i'm desperate and i'll do anything for this to be you know for you guys to be right and you guys to be able to figure out what it is but i i don't in my heart think that you know that's true or that's gonna happen and so. she and she just wants somebody huh. she wants somebody to look her in the eye and say I know what this is. It's this, and we can take care of it. Right. And that's she's not right. getting that from the medical community. And she even well, she doesn't even she doesn't really get it from Karis either. Yeah, it's not until Marin shows up. It's not until Marin. Well, yeah, right. When yep. Marin shows up, he's the one that's like, "We're gonna, we're gonna help your daughter." You know, don't don't worry. Right. Um, right. But and one of the things I think that um, well let, let's get some of the fact like the facts of the film out of the way. So it's uh, The Exorcist, 1973, directed by William Friedkin. Of course, based on the novel by William Peter Blatty. Um, you've got uh, Regan McNeil. She's the child, the afflicted, uh, played by Linda Blair. Her mother, Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn. Uh, Father Damien Karras, uh, the young priest, is played by Jason Miller. This was, I, I'm not sure if it was his very first film, but he was basically not known. He was kind of a nobody before this film. And, right. um, of course, you've got the great Max von Sydow as uh, Father Lancaster Marin. You've got uh, Lee J. Cobb, who's like big Hollywood heavy hit character actor he plays the uh, the detective because there's there is a death like a a mysterious death that occurs and so the the cops have to come sniffing around he's lieutenant mm -hmm. william kinderman and um and i i feel like i have to mention up at the top the voice of the demon pazuzu uh is uh portrayed by a classic hollywood actress by the name of mercedes mccambridge 
um, because mm. that that voice is killer. That 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 yeah, makes those sure. a lot of those scenes, a lot of those scenes sure. where where they might be um, in another movie hammy. Um, in this movie, right. they're more effective because of that voice coming out of this little girl. <clears throat> so uh, it was released in theaters on. Uh, get this, December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy three. They released it the day after Christmas. <laughs> Perfect timing. Brilliant. Brilliant. Sure. Warner Brothers Christmas gift to the world: The Exorcist. Right. <laughs> you get. You need something to do the day after Christmas. Why not go see The Exorcist? But the uh, the showings were immediately sold out. Um, Theater goers were infamously suffering physical reactions, including fainting and vomiting. Um, Some of that was, uh, there were people who were deeply affected by it. Some people who had to leave the theater. Um, But some of that stuff, like having an ambulance out in front of the theaters for openings and things like that, that was a bit of a PR stunt by the studio to try and, there there were actually people at the studio that were afraid this was going to tank. Um, mm. Even when they saw the final cut, I can see why. Yeah, <laughs> they, they were afraid it was going to tank, and they didn't. They didn't realize the the reaction that the the public would have to it. That they actually people saw this and really were uh, shocked and petrified by some of the stuff that that happened. You know what film. this movie movie is? Not to interrupt your production notes. No, but go I ahead. Just kind of came up with a comparison. When I was, I don't know when the movie came out, um, but I went to see uh, The English Patient with Aaron, uh, our friend Aaron and her mom. And it was the most boring movie I've ever seen in my entire life. This is the horror version of <laughs> The English Patient. Oh man! <laughs> so like praised by critics, right? Praised by critics, made a ton of money. But oh my god! Like I actually, there were critics that I, didn't even I like fell this asleep. film. There's I I only fell I've only ever fallen asleep during two movies. One is The English Patient, and the other is The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. I'm sorry. Continue with your production notes because you can tell that this is how the podcast is going to go. There, there were some critics that that did not like the film. There were some critics that pointed out what they saw as as flaws. But uh, the public, the money that it made, uh, kind of it made a ton of money. And I wonder, that. I wonder if it would make as much money today. Like, well, what, I wonder if that because because because, and I I wonder this because I think. I mean, I don't think in general people are as religious as they used to be even 50 years ago. So I'm wondering if at this time, you know, you still had people faithfully going to church. Um, Not to say that people don't do that now, as we found out from, you know, the 2016 election and all the... Trumpers, you know, and stuff like that, that were religious fanatics and stuff like that. So um, people are going to church, but I feel like they were going to church more in the 70s, 60s, 70s 
you know, than they were going. It, that was still a traditional thing. Even when we were growing up, I went to church every week. But I don't, like, I didn't raise my kids that way. We, you know, so Mina's not going to really go to church at all. Um, and I think as you go and as you move away from more and more people going, you know, to church and being religious and kind of believing in stuff like this, that it's not as as effective as it was in 1973. Is that too much? Is that well? I'm gonna I'm gonna before I move on, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna circle back to this. Okay, but I think that your initial point is correct, but I think that also. Uh, this is one that stuck around because the issues and the things that it deals with are cyclical. And I think mm. that there's, Ooh, time, cyclical. there's really? time periods when it comes back around when, when this movie has been and will be more relevant and will impact people more than it might right now. Hmm. But, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean it. I went, I, okay. I keep interrupting you. I'm it's okay. sorry. No, it's okay. We'll 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 get into all this stuff. Um. So the the novel, just to get into uh, that part, the novel was uh, inspired by a believed to be real exorcism. William Peter Blatty was attending college at Georgetown University in Maryland, and apparently this exorcism was something that was like talked about on campus, and then he also read an article in the Washington Post where, because the, the, the exorcism, the real exorcism was supposed to have happened in like the 40s, like late 40s, early 50s, 1949, thereabouts. It was um, the exorcism of someone that they only co- went by the name Roland Doe. They didn't reveal. Since, since then, if you wanted to Google it, you could find out what the guy's real name was and all this stuff. But when this guy was a teenager, he had had these uh, series of exorcisms performed on him uh, in Maryland and then in St. Louis. And here, the reason it kind of was around Georgetown was because at some point, because it was a Catholic university, at some point, mm. the uh, one or two of the priests that had been involved in one of those exorcisms had actually been on the campus, living on or around the campus. And so it got around like, oh, that guy's an exorcist. You know, that that guy saw some shit. And a few people who heard the story of it directly from these priests, like they the William Peter Blatty said it, it literally came up. Professors sometimes would bring it up in lectures, you know, like just talk, talking about, oh, and when that thing happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he heard about it and he got like, um, he got a little obsessed with it. He was like, let me look into this. Because if you could prove that this really happened, if like somehow you could like uh, really get to the bottom of what happened with this supposed possession, wow, wouldn't that confirm for everybody, you know, that all this stuff is real and there really is life after death and there's really, you know, realms that your soul goes to and all this kind of other stuff. And so it really, really, he soaked it up and he got really interested in it till finally he wrote the book. Hmm. Now the book... Um, I have not read the book. I want to read the book eventually, but um, the book, from what I've read about it, is two to three times as graphic as this film. And 
talking about, you know, how uh, Reagan in the book uh, is constantly, like, shitting the bed, and there's even more sexual stuff that she tries to do, and all this kind of stuff. And it really goes, uh, goes to a graphic uh, area. <clears throat> and we're going to get into some of these things. Like, we're going to talk, be talking about some kind of big subjects. And so, you know, before we get too, too much further into it, you know, a little bit of a trigger warning. You know, if you're sensitive to talking about religious issues or, you know, mm. subjects of your faith Uh-oh. or whatever, you know. Just have be, I already, I haven't offended anybody. Well, I don't know, but just be warned. We're going to get into some of this stuff. And like... Uh-oh. Like Bill Blatty and like Bill Friedkin, we don't give a fuck. So we're going to talk about it. And, and if you don't want to listen to it, you might as well just skip to the next thing. <laughs> yeah, I might offend some people with my comments. So I apologize in advance. Um, but yeah, I mean, so William Friedkin, he was not the first choice for this film. They tried to get, um, when, when the studio got the rights to it, uh, William Peter Blatty was one of the producers on it. Um, that was like his deal. Like he he wanted to get into movies. He was like, if you're gonna if you're gonna make a movie out of my book, I want to be a producer. And so they let him be a producer. They tried to get Kubrick. Like they 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 went through so many casting choices, and the studio would want one person. And William Friedkin was like, if I have to have that person in this movie, I walk, <laughs> you right. know, and all this stuff. And so they finally started whittling it down. They got Ellen Burstyn. She was like um, one of the first people that they they hired William Friedkin really wanted her um Linda Blair was a walk-on they actually went through about three or four actresses before her who when these actors these young very young child actresses when their parents like would see what it was about or the read the script they was like no 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 way our kids not being in this Linda Blair's mother heard that they were like casting for this film and she they had actually read the book so they read like the the uncut, unedited version of some of these scenes, and yep. she brings Linda in, like just shows up without an appointment, and is like, um, "I'd like my daughter, you know, uh, my daughter wants to get in acting. We've read your book. We, you know, we want to, you know, she wants to maybe see if you would want her for the movie." And uh, William Friedkin was kind of like, "She was twelve, you know." And so William Friedkin was like, okay, well, so you've read this book? And Linda Blair was like, yeah. And he's like, so what is it about? He's like trying to feel out like... Yeah, if she actually read if it. If you actually read this or not. So he's like, what it's a, sure. what's it about? And she's like, well, it's about a girl that becomes possessed by a demon, and then she does a bunch of really bad things. And he goes, what kind of bad things? She's like, well, she hits her mother, and she says a bunch of bad words, and then she masturbates with a crucifix. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes do you know what that means, what that is? And she goes, I don't know. It's like jerking off, right? <laughs> and he goes, have you done that? And she goes, oh, God. It was the 70s. <laughs> he, he just kind of like, he's like, I think he's still like, kind of like, this can't be, this girl cannot have like, she can't yeah. be this kind of like old, you know, mentally. Right. And right. Um, And she goes, she says, well, sure, haven't you? <laughs> that was Linda Blair's Oh, response. my God. So oh my God. after yeah. after this little test and audition and interview, you know, they hired her. And, um, and the funniest part is uh, when it gets to uh, Jason Miller, 
they had actually already hired Stacy Keach. Stacy Keach was going to be Father Damien Damien Karras. Oh wow! And then William Friedkin went and saw a play that Jason Miller had written himself and starred in, yep. and liked him, liked the performance, liked the play, and the play was all about all this. There was a lot of like lapsed Catholicism stuff in it. And so William Friedkin had told him, oh, you know, your, your play it kind of coincided with something that I'm working on. It's, you know, we're making a movie out of the book, The Exorcist. You should read that book. And Jason Miller read the book, and then he called William Friedkin up like a week later or something and was like, this guy's me. This Father Damien Karras, this is me. And William Friedkin is like, yeah, right. What, is, you know, what are you talking about? And Jason Miller's like, I went to seminary. He's like, I was studying to be a priest. I had a crisis of faith and I left. Mm. And he's like, you know, he's like, this guy's me. This is exactly how I felt. And so he's like, all right, fine. We'll do a screen test. You fly out on your dime. I'm not paying for your plane ticket. You fly out on your dime because we've already hired a guy. So we'll do a screen test. So he had him like screen test with Ellen Burstyn, had them do a scene. And he really liked what he did, but he didn't want to like just base it off of that. And he's like, okay, now why don't you and like Ellen, like Ellen interview him. And so she's asking him about like going to seminary and all this kind of stuff. And the way they were interacting was really good. And then um, he actually performed a mass because he still remembered how to do a mass. Oh, wow. And, and so he performed a mass in for them. And um, after that screen test and meeting, William Friedkin called the studio and says, we got to get rid of Stacy Keach. This is my guy. And they were like, but Stacy Keach is hired. He's under contract. And so they did some talking and they agreed to buy out Stacy. He got the full amount of money oh, he would have wow. made for the picture for doing nothing. All right. <laughs> so Good for I mean, Stacy Keach. Oh yeah, yeah. So what I mean, was the show he was in? What was that? Mike Hammer or something like that? Mike Hammer. I don't remember. Yeah, in the eight in the eighties, Stacy Keach was like a. He had a show. He had like a cop show. Um, I, I'd I don't actually know don't. If it was CBS or I don't really? remember it. Yeah, I don't remember it. You don't remember that at all? Oh yeah. No. Okay. I gotta look it up, but uh, but yeah, he and he got the part because he had played like Martin Luther like earlier in his career, and and he so he had this like kind of quiet piousness and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I've I've got a ton of notes, but that's pretty much the the basic production, early production stuff. Um, they filmed it all over the place. They filmed it in New, it was New York. Some of it was actually in Georgetown. But a lot of it yep. was filmed in New York on sets and everything. Um, the only other thing I'll mention, which which we can get into at some point, is this has been, in the past, referred to as a cursed film. Which, almost every movie that right. deals with the devil... Right. Well, Poltergeist was a cursed film, too. Poltergeist. Right? There, Isn't that, like, the, the ultimate cursed film? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, no, Poltergeist actually... Poltergeist is really considered a cursed film just based on, like, a couple of things... Um, and unfortunately, oh, I thought it was a lot of things. Wasn't I thought like? Well, you know, I mean, obviously they, the, the they young had some, actress that died. In well, yeah, they had a couple people die, 
and they had some like light <laughs> yeah, issues. Yeah, a couple people died and things like that. But it, it's like when you get yep. when you get down into it, it's like trying to blame the death of Heather O'Rourke and Dominique Dunn on a curse is kind of shitty because Dominique Dunn was like murdered by a boyfriend, and mm-hmm. Heather O'Rourke was she died because she I had thought a, she had an undiagnosed she had a congenital right? defect in her digestive defect. tract. Right, and, right, and, right. And it basically like ruptured one one day, and and she went septic. Yeah. You know, so that's a, you know, it, it feels kind of shitty when you chalk that up, you know. But this is considered a a, a cursed film. Um, there there were some deaths. There were a few people that died during uh, filming. Um, no, nobody like. Well, it, there was the guy that played Burke Dennings, who was the director of the fake movie in the film. He died before right. he died after like it was after all his scenes were done and he had medical issues and he ended up dying. And then oh, wow. the woman who plays uh, Damien Karras's mother, who actually William Friedkin, she was another person. There are a lot of people in this film that are not actors by profession. And she hmm. was one of them. Uh, he met her in a Greek restaurant. And he has this character in the movie, this Greek American priest and they have a part for a mother and he thought she was like perfect that she was super authentic um, and if you watch you'd never know she wasn't an actress you know what I mean right um, and there's also lots of uh, there's three pr- actual priests in the film there's uh, yeah there's and, Father Marin Father Karras and then the and then the guy at the end the <laughs> best friend of no, fa- Father Dyer who is like the the friend who's at the party and then gives David his last right. rites he's at he's actually Father uh, O'Malley he's a real priest um, the guy I'm watching the scene where he's meeting with his like mentor at the church like uh, this guy Tom I don't know what his last name's supposed to be in it that guy's an actual priest he was one of the technical advisors on the film and the guy that plays like the monsignor or bishop or somebody that he meets with later about the guy the that Harris is talking to this this mentor here he's he looks very familiar I thought he was that's a real he's a real priest he was brought in to advise uh. on the film and they gave him a part in the movie uh, same thing he looks for, familiar. <laughs> same thing with the 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 like I said the bishop or monsignor or whatever he's supposed to be that Karis goes to to try and get permission for the exorcism. That guy's a real priest as well. Um, yeah, so William, that guy I never saw before. William Friedkin really—that's the thing. He had like these these priests like on set at all times. Like he wanted to like really ask him like, okay, w- would this happen? Would that happen? Um, because I think at least one of them had 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 an experience taking part in an exorcism. So he mm. kind of relied on that guy to tell him, okay, is this actually what you would do? Is this the real right? Because this is, in this film, more than in any other exorcism film that I've, I've seen, this is more true to the actual ritual of exorcism than you get in other films. In mm. other films, they mess around with it. I don't know why, but they like mess around with it and they change up the prayers and stuff. Um, so it's kind of weird, but, uh, so, so let's get into like, what is, what is your first, uh, big gripe with the film? I just feel it's, it's, um, 
it's very slow. There's not a lot of music in it. The only music um, in the movie is really um, the the theme, the main theme. Yeah, the, tubular bells you know, by piano. Mike Oldfield. Right, right. So um, you hear it a couple of times in the movie, um, and uh, and that's really it. A lot of there's no real score to the movie, right? Yeah, you I hear, mean, you hear it, like other little musical hits. Yeah, it's a very quiet movie. It's a very slow, very quiet kind of lead up. So in general, I know there are other parts of the film that are good. Like I'm not I'm not saying that, but it's really you're waiting, it's a 2-hour movie. And you're really waiting an hour and 40 minutes for the last 20 minutes of the movie when they're actually performing the exorcism. Yeah. So that's, that's hard to swallow for a horror movie fan that grew up with Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger and Jason who are killing throughout the movie. They are, the horror is happening throughout the movie. It's a lot of setup. It's a ton of setup. Well, and that's and, that's and even something... even in seventy eight because this is seventy three, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was seventy four. Yeah, and they that managed to hold my attention from beginning to end. So it's not like it's an age thing. I like like um, Night of the Living Dead. It's it's right from the jump. It's right from the jump. They're in the graveyard. Here comes the zombie, and it starts. And the movie is 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 horrific from minute one. This is just so much. It's an hour and forty minutes of just like okay, like well, and okay. that's and that's the, the the thing. There's two, well, three things. So first, <laughs> the the issue with the music, yeah, that is that is like an unfortunate thing. That um, I mean, in some ways it it works, but it's not what William Friedkin really wanted. It's one of the few things that kind of got screwed up because. Um, he went first. He went to Bernard Herrmann, like the guy who like wrote the score for Jaws and like all these big Psycho, all these big films. He went right. to that guy first and and showed him the rough cut of the film. And there's a whole story that William Friedkin tells. Um, if you want on Shutter, there's actually a, a documentary called Leap of Faith, where it's basically just a long interview, cut in with like scenes from the film and everything of William Friedkin talking about ma- ma- the making of The Exorcist, and he talks about how when William Peter Blatty in the book, there's a prologue that takes place in Northern Iraq. Right. And William Peter Blatty put it in the book, but a lot of, I guess like his friends and stuff who read the book said like, Oh, that prologue, that's like, why is that even there? You don't really need that. So when he went to write the screenplay for the film, William Peter Blatty took that out. Mm. And when William Friedkin got it, William Friedkin said, what, do you, what did you do? Like, why did you remove the prologue? And he's like, right. oh, it's really unnecessary for the, to get the story and, and this and that. And William Friedkin said, no. He goes, that's, you need it. He's like, I'm not going to make the movie without it. And he was like, what are you talking about? And William Friedkin saw it as the, the premonition it was the premonition that Marin has of this impending confrontation with 
what to him, you find out that he's done other exorcisms, is an old enemy. Right. He feels it coming. He feels it. What, <laughs> what are you laughing about? Nothing. The scene in the movie where they walk in and the, the statue is oh, like the statue's all defaced and, and with yeah, it's boobies pretty funny. Yeah. Um. So like you 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 see that something is coming. Marin feels it. He feels like a change that something is rising. And William Friedkin was like that. W- that was the arc of the film for him was this slow. Which actually the way he does it is in reality when you when you read books and people talk about uh, possessions, if you believe that they're real, I don't necessarily believe that they're real, but if you believe that they're real, this is the way they go. They build slowly. It's small you don't? changes. Um, no, no, because I have a... Like, I, I think that you think <laughs> that like 99.99999% of them are fake. Yeah, I think I think that it's it's a it's something that could possibly happen. However, I because how ha- open are we going to be here about our faith? Because well, I've always um, I've always I don't, I, yeah I, I've always doubted the existence of a quote unquote Satan, and I've always doubted the existence of you know literal demons and things but if we step mm-hmm. into like my paranormal thinking way of thinking i do believe that there are spirits that things that you know there's a, a place after death and that spirits can you know stick around and inhabit buildings and you know uh, mess with things and fiddle with you know the material world um i tend to think that when it comes to things like when we talk about demons I think that, okay, if I believe that ghosts, that there are ghosts, if I believe that a person's soul can exist after the death of the body, then that means that there are souls that have possibly been on the earth for millions of years since the dawn of man, right? And if that's the case, uh, if you've been around that long, at what point do you forget what your living existence was like and you begin to think of yourself as in some other terms as something else and you begin to take on and maybe you lived in a time where you had to be animalistic and you're assuming that consciousness remains the same if you're if you become that exactly exactly that 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 you are still aware that you were ever human right you might not be. What if you're, what if you're here so long you literally go insane, and mm. and then when you sort of show up, latch on to a person or a place, and they start referring to you as a demon and referring to you in these terms, these religious terms, are you going to think, oh well, yeah, that sounds like what I think I am, <laughs> and are you going to take on? those I don't know can you google it attributes? when you're dead you know after you're dead then you know but that's that's yeah. what, that's what I'm saying like if if you if you've been around long enough that that you know the consciousness uh becomes abnormal 
skews, evolves. You start to think of yourself almost in deific terms. You know, I must be some mm. sort of weird god. Yeah. You know, uh, that I'm here and I can see all these things and, and do all these things and no one can see me and, and all this kind of stuff. And so do I think that there's a, uh, a even a 0.1% possibility that one of those entities, if they exist, if they've forgotten what they are and have decided to take on a what we would consider a demonic mentality, could that latch on to a person and change them, you know, into some acting like someone else or invade them and make them do crazy, kooky, uh, negative, malignant things? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I think I think it's only if you've ruled out all of the other psychiatric or physiological issues that might be going on and you're left with some really weird supernatural shit that you can't explain, you know, which is what, according to the Catholic Church, you know, that's what they try to do. You know, sometimes you see these, like, Baptist preachers going out and they're like, I'm going to exercise all these demons in the crowd, you know, and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. But when it comes to, like, the Catholics, like, the, the they treat it like, hey, no, we recognize the fact that there's schizophrenia. We recognize yeah. the fact that there's dissociative disorders. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're not we're not the uh, mongoloid Neanderthals that you think we are. Like, no, we believe in all these medical things that could cause a person to do this, which is why we're going to roll real slow on whether or not we're going to commit to come in and do an exorcism for anybody. Which which is um, Karis in the movie. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. Because that's, that's that's how he is. He's a psychiatrist. He's, he's a psychiatrist, so he believes in you know all that stuff that you. Whereas Marin, mental disorder, and yeah, sure. Whereas Marin is the archaeologist who his whole yep. world is ancient beliefs, ancient cultures, and it's all angels and demons and stuff. You know, old right. gods, right. all that kind of thing, and so right. he is much more deep in that area. So when he walks into a situation, he's like, you know, it's a demon, and we're going to expel it. And that's it, <laughs> you know. Right. So, um... but uh, but to get back to what I was trying to say, so <laughs> it, it does move slow. Uh, well, the the music first. The music is because uh, he he went to meet with Bernard Herman, and Bernard Herman. The first thing he says, well, he says I'd cut on, out all that shit about Iraq, <laughs> and William Friedkin was like, "Nice meeting with you." <laughs> He got up and he left. <laughs> so you're one of the greatest movie composers of all time. Tells him that his opening sucks <laughs> yeah. to his face. And he's like, all right, I'm done. And then he went to like another guy, a friend of his, who did kind of more avant-garde music. And he, he said, according to William Friedkin, he explained to him, like, I want it to start quiet and over the course of the film, build and build and build till we get to the exorcism stuff till we get to the really big scenes and then it can be bombastic and <laughs> he explained that to him and he even wanted the opening to be silent like he wanted you to hear the picks and the axes at the archaeological dig and when he went to listen to the guy preview the score he had an 80 piece orchestra and they started playing at full volume right off the get go right. and, and William Friedkin is like no this isn't what we discussed and, he's, and he, the guy was a friend of his, so he's like, can you change it? 
And the guy's mm-hmm. like, no, no, I, uh, I'm not going to change it. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to use it. And he says he left and he said they never spoke again. Oh, wow. It was like that upsetting to their friendship that they never spoke again. But so wow. he ended up using the little bit of music that you hear is stuff that he found other recordings of. Like, you know, Mike Oldfield already had written Tubular Bells. It was like a separate, mm-hmm. it was part of his music, you know, stuff. And But he heard it on an album and he thought that's perfect for the these particular scenes that I want. And so that's what you have in the movie is really his uh, sort of sample track that he had in his head for these scenes. Yeah. Um, but it does it does do a slow build. It does a slow build, and that, that is definitely on purpose because William Friedkin, in his opinion, he was like, you need to see the little girl before the demon and the relationship with the mother. You need to intimately get to know these people before mm. you get to that. And mm-hmm. yeah, for, I can understand why for some people it, it's too slow. Um, for me, it really is this, it, it's like this slow, like, you know, this big, horrible thing is coming and it's like that. It's a little bit of, yes, like a, like a pleasure. Oh, it's coming, but it's not coming for an hour and 40 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I so can definitely strap in, folks. I can definitely see it being too slow for some people, but but yeah. I I for one appreciate the fact that he is taking the time because like if you did a movie that was just The Exorcism, it's like you're you're starting at eleven, you know, and and he wanted it to start at literally one yeah. and build right. up to eleven. Right. Well, he stayed at one for quite a while. <laughs> Um, but I mean, you know, there's, there's so much, uh, there's so much cool stuff that, that happens in the film. There's, there's this very dreamy feel to it. Like right now he's having this nightmare about his mother, right. um, you know, losing his, his mother cause his mother is like slowly slipping away and dying. And yep. there, there is this dream quality and William Friedkin wanted to play around with like are these things actually happening or is this just the agreed upon perception of everybody involved? Mm. Like when you see certain things, like at certain times when Karis looks at the demon, is the demon really doing that? Or is that what is being kind of put into Karis's head? Is that just what he's seeing? Well, the vomit was real. Yeah. The vomit was definitely real. Oh, did you did you read that when she vomited when so when the vomit hit him, it was supposed to hit him in the chest. They rehearsed it like three times with it hitting him in the and chest. And it hit him square while well, it hit him square in the kisser, right? So and he was pissed. Oh, like yeah. he was super pissed. It got about in his it. mouth yeah. and everything. It got, oh yeah. Like that yeah, I guess he was yeah, he was very angry. So. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't taste good. It was some kind of oatmeal like mix that they made up yeah. and turned green and yeah. um and it was it was uh it was like warm <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh and yeah and that's that's one of the big things that people love to talk about about this movie is um you know sometimes even more than the on the scene stuff which like you know uh, to watch as far as like from an acting standpoint to watch Ellen Burstyn in these scenes is great 
But mm. a lot of people, they love to talk about William Friedkin because he did some crazy stuff that only in the 70s could you get away with on a movie set. And he would mess around with this stuff like that, the vomit thing. He told them, like, okay, on the take, hit him in the face with it. <laughs> he Was it him that shot the gun in his ear? He did it twice. To get a, star- to get a startled reaction from him? He did it twice. And um, it, that actually wasn't even his idea. He had read an article about a director named George Stevens who, who would do that on sets to get reaction shots, would fire a yeah. pistol or a rifle off. Um, so that's what William Friedkin decided. Well, I'll do that. Like, I want to get these like really good reactions, you know? And so, yeah, there's a scene where, um, Jason Miller is listening to Karis is listening to the tape of the girl's voice and get it. He's like mm-hmm. really intensely listening to it. And the phone rings and William Friedkin was like, I wasn't going to play the sound of a phone ringing to get that jump scare. He's like, so I shot off a rifle. <laughs> And then Makes when sense. the when the doctors come into Reagan's bedroom, and the the door opens and they they they, they come into like this chaos, and right. this horrific scene of the girl and you know she's strapped to the bed and she looks horrible. He wanted right. like a big reaction, a big shocked reaction on their faces for that, so he shot a rifle off for that one too. But he would wow. do that like, uh, uh, there were injuries like Linda Blair got injured. Uh, there was the scene where she's flopping in the bed. And the 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 back thing came loose because she was in a harness that would make her flop up and down, and it came loose, and she literally like broke uh, one of her discs or something in her lower back. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was laid up for a little bit. Ellen Burstyn, she got uh, uh, like a fracture um, when Reagan hits her and she flies across the room because uh, the first couple times they did it. That William Friedkin was like the guys are taking it too easy on her pulling the rope. It doesn't look it doesn't look real. So he right. went back and he told the the two guys pulling the rope. He was like, "You need yank. to really fucking yank on yeah. it this time." And so they yep. fucking did. And she flew and her head hit the floor and she was hurt. She was actually really hurt. That's and yeah. those are the shots that are in the movie. Like he right. he, he at least had the he at least had that kind of stunt man courtesy of like when somebody gets hurt, you use the take. <laughs> Oh, I'm this, sorry. I'm at the I'm at the scene where there's the angiogram. The, neck. Oh. the angiogram, and that is those are real doctors. I think the that they I think they have a thing set up on the other side to make it look like they're actually draining her blood out. That's not that's not real. But the actual procedure, everything that they're doing, oh. is what they would really do in an angiogram at that time period. And right. this actually. I couldn't believe it, but when I when I was doing research and watching some of these uh, documentaries and stuff, they said this part actually freaks people out more in some cases than any other part of the film because they they couldn't believe that this is real, that this is actually what they do when yeah. they do an angiogram. Um, fun fact: the bearded nurse that assists the doctor in doing the angiogram, that dude murdered a guy. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. my God. It's actually part of uh, what people consider to be part of the curse. Um, let me look up, find my note on it. Uh, I got so many fucking notes for this fucking movie. Um, where the hell is it? Oh, yeah, that 
that nurse, the the bearded nurse, his name is, he was actually like an, a, a tech. I say he's a nurse, but he was really a tech. Um, his name is Paul Bateson. Um, and on September 14th, 1977, he murdered a uh, variety reporter named Addison Farrell in Addison Farrell's apartment. Oh, wow. Yeah, they, they got together for a, a meetup. Um, they were, they were going to have a little, little tryst and for whatever reason, don't know what happened, but he killed that guy, like stabbed oh, the, wow. stabbed the shit out of him. And, uh, the guy's neighbor, neighbor ended up finding him. <clears throat> mm. Yeah. Here's where she like breaks her spine doing the flopping up and down in the bed. Right. Yeah. That's now that that's not, uh, that's not the part, but where she's like screaming mother and crying. That was like her real, like crying. She was really crying. Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, to, to just to go back to, you know, your, what my problem with the movie that, that that's my main issue with it. It's just, it's so like all growing up, um, every list of horror movies, you know, had the exorcist is the greatest horror movie of all time. This is, I was always told that this was the scariest movie of all time. And when I watched it for the first time, I was just like, okay, um, it, it was like, you it know, was built up. If in your I head. can, it was built up in my head because it was, that's how it was presented. I mean, it was presented. Um, and it wasn't like, it like, you know, family and friends just talked it up it was it was built up because every every publication every special every documentary everything every ranking system of horror movies always had the exorcist number one and i never really understood it i watched it and i go okay but number one really i mean there's there's some great horror movies um that were behind the exorcist and no, I'm I'm sorry. I, I for as it's a it's a good movie. Again, it's it's well made, and the acting is really good. But well, you, man, you are they are really asking a lot of the audience. And again, in 1973, fine, I get it. Like in 1973, audiences, I I I do think were this this hit home a little bit more well um because because of the religious aspect of it and 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 i think i i just don't think there's any way this movie has the same impact in 2023 well okay so here so let's get it let's get into that discussion because <laughs> because the the reason i i mentioned before about the cyclical nature of things so we one, did one of Let, the let's come back to that let's come back to that so one of the things that people talk about, and actually the movie now gets criticized in in the in the in today's uh, social what's the conversation, it gets criticized because people watch this movie and they feel like it reinforces these old institutions. They feel like William Friedkin. Uh, in the way he presents the film and even William Peter Blatty in the story that that they're like reinforcing this like patriarchal institutional 
thing that that it's like oh only the the old white dudes in the collars can come in right. and save the day right right the men the men sure and and they feel like it reinforces uh all that stuff um i'm gonna i'm gonna do a, a really hard hot take here that that if anybody does listen to this episode um it may upset some people i don't know but uh oh if that's what they think the movie's about they haven't actually really watched the movie they've only watched it through the lens of their own philosophy because i think that this what this movie really shows is that the institutions fail i agree with you i was just going to say that they're, they're, they're wrong they ended up they end up being wrong and the person that was right the whole time or the person that was knew best was her was the mother was, was, right. was the mother and so yeah go ahead yeah she she turns to the medical community the medical community fails she then turns to the religious community and damien Karras. And, and here's the big thing is now william friedkin kind of uh to me a little infamously says you know, he, he, he talks about how he kind of sleepwalks through making films, like that just stuff comes to him. And, Definitely. Oh, oh. <laughs> and just things kind of happen by chance, and he puts images together and all this kind of stuff. I'd love to believe that, but, you know, sometimes shit comes through that maybe you don't realize is kind of super obvious. But I find a lot of metaphor in the film. And one of the biggest metaphors that I find is the the kind of pairing of Father Lancaster Marin and Father Damien Karras. So the medical community fails. Things are spiraling out of control. Chris McNeil, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to help her daughter. She doesn't know what's wrong. But she has come to think that there must be something evil, some, some other force happening here. So she turns to Damien Karras. Now, Damien Karras represents the new church. Uh, right. he, now, if for you, you don't really have to know this about the church, but there was like the whole thing with like Vatican II and they stopped. Vatican II, sure. Yeah, and they stopped uh, requiring the Mass in Latin and all this kind of stuff. Damien Karras represents the, the new church, the modern church, or, or what maybe we would hope the modern church would have become after mm-hmm. Vatican II. Because he's representing like a much more grounded in reality, grounded in the world, grounded in science and fact. He doesn't believe in the devil. He doesn't believe in demonic possession. He thinks those are fairy stories. He tells her that. Like, that's not real. That's just what the church used to scare people into being good. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't believe in any of that stuff. And... Then you have Father Lancaster Marin, who we talked about, is based out of archaeology and old ways and old traditions. He represents the old church. He represents pre-Vatican II church. And he's coming in, believing in the devil, believing in all of the mystical parts of Catholicism. Um, Because he's seen it. The part of it is because he's seen it. He's done exorcisms before this. He's been confronted with it before. But that's what he represents. And what happens during the exorcism, Brad? What happens to Marin? What happens to Marin? He dies. 
He dies because the old church fails. The old church can't get okay. the job done. What happens to Karis? What happens to Karis is Karis is confronted with this thing that he never believed in, never conceived of. He He's confronted with the reality that there is a, a real pervasive supernatural evil that wants to destroy him because really technically he's the main character of the movie. A lot of people think that it's the little girl. It's not. It's called The Exorcist. It's Karis. Yeah. Because it's no, about you... Damien Karis. Right. So he's confronted with this thing that he never thought was real, never believed in. And he watches the old way, the ritual fail. The ritual can't save her. The old church can't save her. But what have they established about Damien Karras's character prior to the exorcism? He believes he's, he's much more based in reality. And also they show scenes of him doing what? He's boxing. Boxing. He's a yeah. fighter. So he falls back mm-hmm. on what he knows. He's like, the ritual isn't, isn't working. The demon is going to win. The demon is going to kill this little girl if I don't do something right now. So, like people are wishing the institu- these old, crusty institutions would do, they wish these old, crusty, you know, ivory tower institutions would get down on the ground level and really do what it takes to help people get in the trenches, Damien Karras physically attacks the demon and starts beating the shit out of Regan McNeil. <laughs> yeah. And, yep. But at some point he realizes, okay, I'm fighting the demon, but it's in this little girl. I don't want to kill the little girl. I want to save the little girl. So that's when he demands that he, he's like, okay, he realizes the demon wants me. Right. The demon wants to ruin me, wants to destroy me, my faith, everything that I believe in, everything that I hold dear. It wants to destroy what I think of my mother because it's been using his mother, saying his mother's in hell. Mm-hmm. You know, it wants to destroy the love that I have for my mother and use my guilt, you know, to destroy me. And what does his mother do in hell? <laughs> she sucks cocks, Brad. She sucks, she, cocks. she sucks lots of cocks. She sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> but so he says, you know, come into me, take me. And the demon, yeah. when like, a lot of people kind of question that. Even William Freed can question Blatty on like some of the stuff in the end. Like, like why would it do this? Why would that happen? I, it doesn't make sense. But when faced with the demon, like a, like a priest offering himself up for possession the demon can't resist it the demon's like mm-hmm. oh, okay yeah yeah let's do this yeah and it comes yeah. into him and you see he's about to then the demon using the priest and he go and is about and to kill Ka- the little girl there's anyway. enough of Karis in there to go no but that's and he the th- jumps out the window and sacrifices but that's himself the thing so because yep. see that's the thing he's like i can't fight it i want to fight it but i can't fight it in the little girl because i'll kill her Right. So I got to fight it on my turf. In I got to let it come into me. And then he's mm-hmm. able to resist the demon. And he realizes if I throw myself out this window, I'm going to take it with me. And so he throws it, knowing he's he's probably going to die. He throws himself out the window, takes the big tum- oh. tumble down the stairs. 
Yeah, and the worst part about that is that when Father Dyer yeah. like gives him his last rites because he's still alive. Yeah, he's oh, he looks like he a slowly mess. I couldn't even I couldn't hand. even make out I couldn't even make out his where his face was. Like yeah. I his like head was smashed. Yeah, you just you just and, see like, him slowly grip and he's Dyer's that's all hand. he can do is just he can hear him. <laughs> And he can understand him. So he just, so he's conscious. Yeah. And he's, and he he bends, he bends down, you know, he, Dyer bends down and asks him uh, about confessing his sins or being sorry for his sins. And, Mm -hmm. um, and you don't hear it, but you get the sense that he was able to just barely whisper something to Dyer because Dyer's like, okay, you know? And because it's sort of a Catholic thing, he has to know that like you are like consciously like wanting to absolve your yeah. you know, be absolved, yeah. and uh, and yeah, so care and so that's the thing. So a lot of people think like, oh, well, Karis dies, so you know, but no, like that's that's his way of winning. He literally goes intimately up against the evil, mm. and 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 fights it physically himself and then is willing whereas whereas these institutions the the church the old church especially uh, would any i mean even up until today because as we know realistically the church really didn't change very much at all whether it's vatican II or even today you know the church hasn't truly changed a whole lot right but they the idea is in this story is this kind of new way of thinking of getting down and dirty and actually doing something about these things, about the evils of the world, and be, being willing to sacrifice yourself, to sacrifice even the church to help people, to actually help them, to actually fight the evils of the world, that's what wins. That's what works. And he's willing to make that sacrifice He's willing to give up everything because it means defeating this evil and saving this little girl. Mm. And, you know, so it has those two, those two levels of the mother is the only one who really believes and understands what's going on. And she just wants help because she's unfortunately out of her depth. She doesn't know how to help her daughter. And then you have this confrontation where the old ways fail and this kind of new way, this this fighter wins. And I think what that really, unlike I said what people think is that it reinforces these old establishments, these old institutions, it's really saying, no, these institutions need to change. These institutions need to actually give a shit and really get in there and try and help people. Who, mm-hmm. who need help and really try and stop the bad shit that happens in the world. Because you got to think, this is 73. You know, we're, we're you know, Vietnam is still, you know, a thing. <laughs> this is, you know, yeah. we're, we're coming out of this time period where, you know, people f- uh, feel um, rudderless and powerless and they feel like, um, you know, things are diminishing and 
uh, people, the individual feels diminished and the institutions feel diminished, you know, we're, we're right on the edge of Watergate, you know, where we're going to learn that our political institutions are shit and, <laughs> and all these things are kind of feel like they're crumbling around America, you know, at this time. And, and I mean, you know, all over the place. And so this movie comes in at a time where they're saying, well, yeah, we need a new way. We need a new, uh, a new revitalization of, you know, we need to be willing to give up the old ways and the old institutions and start new from a new perspective of actually trying to do good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, that's why I say with these issues that the film is dealing with and the message that the film is kind of putting out there that uh, it's cyclical. It's, it's, when, it's whenever that kind of thing comes around of institutions failing and society kind of questioning what are we doing, where are we going, you know, things like that. This are week, you saying that's where we are in 2023? We very well might be because part of the reason, actually I should announce at the beginning, part of the reason we're doing this episode is because of the fact that there's a sequel about to come out, uh, Believer, the David Gordon Green uh, sequel to The Exorcist. Um, well, and actually, they're at the they're at the the uh, this coffee scene right now where where uh, Lieutenant Kinderman is asking uh, Chris McNeil about the death of Burke Dennings. Burke Dennings got thrown out of the window or fell out of the right. window, but um, they he's questioning it because where everybody else kind of wants to just chalk it up as an accident. Um, and Burke Dennings is the director of the movie that she's supposed to be in. And where uh, everybody's ready to chalk it up as an accident, Kinderman is like, but the way, the force with which it would have taken to twist his head completely around, around. in that fall, yeah. he would have had to hit with force. It's like one in a million, yeah. Yeah, it's like he would have had to be, had to have been thrown down right. out of that window, not right. just fallen out. And, uh, so he wants to know like, okay, was, was your, could, he's basically at one point he very subtly infers, could your that daughter Reagan. have done this? Yeah. You know, and she's trying to say my daughter's sick. She's, you know, she's been, she sleeps, uh, all the time. And, and she tries to tell him he would have had no reason to go into the room. Even he was just literally just sitting in the house babysitting. He wasn't actively, you know going to check on her or anything. She mm-hmm. was asleep. And, uh, and he, it, it's one of these interesting scenes. William Friedkin specifically points it out because the tension in the scene and the acting in the scene is just so great because she's trying to, Ellen Burstyn's character, she's trying to hold this all in the entire mm-hmm. time. And there's a great moment where <laughs> Kinderman is kind of finishing up his questioning and, and she's just trying to be polite. She doesn't want to seem suspicious. Well, I, I did think I did enjoy that he asked for a second cup of well, coffee. Well, yeah, she's like, Would you like another cup of coffee? And you can see on her like, face, yeah. she's yeah. hoping he says no. I have to go. Well, <laughs> she's obviously just doing it to be polite. Or like yep. he said. And he says, Oh, right? sure. And he, know, he knows that. <laughs> like he's not an idiot. He knows that. But he's like, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Second cup of coffee. That'd be great. 
<laughs> lick me, lick me. This is the fucking. Oh, uh, uh, this is this is this is where it goes up a notch. When she's stabbing herself with the crucifix. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so this let's let's get into um, the actual when it finally breaks through as like a full blown possession. Finally, oh my god, how far into this movie are we? And it's just got good, folks. <laughs> so we are so, like an hour and twenty minutes into the movie, and it just like, so after Kinderman good. leaves, all hell breaks loose upstairs. Chris McNeil rushes in and she sees Regan on the bed. Regan's face is bloody. Well, well, first she sees her on the bed and she's she's stabbing herself in the hoo-hoo <laughs> with a crucifix mm-hmm. and repeatedly saying, pardon me for the listeners, let Jesus fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, now, thank goodness, the actual, because they, I mean, he, William Friedkin was like, if this is going to be in any way an effective horror film, you need to see some things. You need to mm-hmm. know what exactly what's going on. Yeah. Thank goodness he had a stand-in actress do the actual crotch shot of the crucifix. Being, yeah, I would hope they didn't ask a 12-year-old to right, do that. Right, right. He, he... You know, they were very aware that this was inappropriate for a 12-year-old. Okay. And so they had a stand-in, a very petite stand-in adult actress do that. Yep. And, um, but yeah, she's stabbing herself down there, uh, you know, masturbating, quote-unquote, as it were. Because in the book, it's very, it's much more, my understanding is it's much more masturbatory. Um, Yeah. But she's yeah. Let Jesus fuck you, and then <laughs> bust out the four dollar words here. Oh man, that's and, classic. And then she stands up on the bed when when the mother bursts in. She stands up on the bed, and also she's got some the beginnings of some scratches on her face. And I'll get into that in a second. But she's like very bloody, and then uh, she's obviously bleeding from her crotch um, because this is a little girl that's been doing this horrible thing. And uh, when Chris McNeil rushes up to her daughter to try and help her daughter and calm her down and figure out what's going on, she grabs her mother by the back of her head and shoves her own mother's face. Now, of course, this is the demon doing this, but she shoves her mother's face down into her bloody groin and starts screaming, lick me, lick me. Mm Mm-hmm. And then throws her away against the wall. Ellen Burstyn, you know, hurts herself. She's got a black eye in the next scene. And yep. um, and, and she's just doing all this horrible stuff. Screaming obscenities and everything else. And then her head does the spin, which I still think is hokey. I totally think that's that's hokey is the head, the head spin. But apparently in 73, people were like, oh my god. <laughs> But I think it's probably the the only hokey thing, like truly hokey thing in the whole movie. Yeah. Um, But so her head spins around and then she speaks to her with Burke Denning's voice saying, do you know what she did? Do you know what your cunting daughter did? Yeah. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and you realize like that's when Ellen Burstyn's character is like, 
what the fuck is this? Like, this is not medical. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like, heads don't fucking spin around because you've got encephalitis or something. (laughs) Encephalitis, yeah. You got bit by a mosquito and now your head's spinning around. So, so of course, she immediately goes to uh, meet with Damien Karras and, like, beg for help. And he's still like, I don't know, like, yeah. just take her to see a doctor. <laughs> but the one thing I wanted to talk about was um, one of the things that kind of, like, uh, drives me a little nuts. And I didn't quite realize it. It's one of those things that when I watched some of the documentary stuff about the film... Um, the the marks on Reagan's face, the the marks, and then her face kind of changes somewhat and looks a little more maniacal uh, uh, over the course of the film. Uh, William Friedkin, when he specifically, as he was talking to the special effects and makeup people and everything about the development of the possession and how it was going to unfold, which I don't know that necessarily you get the perspective of the, like in the book, this is happening over months, right? Mm-hmm. It feels too much like days in the movie. Yeah. It's yeah. Yep. And so by the time now Karis is coming to visit her and she's t- fully tied to the bed and has a feeding tube in and all this stuff, this is now supposed to be like a while later. Mm-hmm. And, She's got these marks on her face, and her face looks different. William Friedkin was like, I want it to look like self-inflicted, like the demon is literally clawing the little girl's face up, and then the marks are getting infected. Like where she's been scratching herself, they're getting these infected gangrenous elements to it. And so most people watch this. Now, of course, her eyes do change. Her eyes go that kind of pale green. Yep. Which is like the... Yeah, the the Incredible Hulk green. Right, which is the one kind of giveaway of a demonic thing, you know, which becomes like a a trope in many films. But what also became a trope was the face changing. And you get all these movies that come after this where they just have, like, magically, the person's face just changes. When they become yeah. demonified. <laughs> well, the, the, the eyes were important because that's how you know that Car- the demon was in Karis. Right, right. Because they, his, eye, his eyes changed. And yeah, you were become, like, oh, the jump to him. and Yeah, yeah so. it becomes very important later on. Uh, yeah, the way it signals the possession. But that was the thing is that here in this film, they had like this organic reason for why her face began to appear that because it's it's getting infected and it's getting s- the swelling there's swelling that's occurring from these self-inflicted wounds on her face so that's why her face is changing is because of the the her self-inflicted stuff and 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 the infections but it, it kind of kills me because in every movie after it the face just changes and and they just think, like, this movie kind of set this weird standard of, like, oh, when you get possessed, then the face just changes. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. That's right. That, when, when they become the demon, the face changes, you know? Sure. And so now you have even, you know, into modern-day possession films where they CGI change the face and everything. And right. after hearing that from William Friedkin, I'm like, oh, my God, like, 
that makes fucking sense. Like that actually is a good reason for the person's appearance to be different. Whereas sure. all these other fuck nuts are just like, oh yeah, when you turn into a demon, your face just morphs. Well, you're a demon, so. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I know like, yeah, they change the eye color uh, as a, a giveaway, as a signal, you know, but I like it better the fact when they keep it kind of grounded in like mm. everything that's happening to her in in or at least 99% of the things that are happening to her, you could explain away maybe with a medical thing, which gives that, leaves that doubt. It leaves that. Not the stuff that the mom was seeing though. Exactly. Not with the, now with, now with the, uh, the bed floating up and the, and the furniture moving all around the room and well, all exactly. That and that's kind of, that's kind of why it plays nice in the beginning is that the mother's seeing crazy shit and she's well, going yeah, to the exactly. doctors and the doctors are like, really? Really? Are you sure about that? <laughs> you're just hysterical. It's, yeah, you're just hysterical. It's you know these. It's that. It's that time. It's that time. These uteruses can really mess with you. And <laughs> <laughs> by saying that, we're just making fun of in all these movies before a certain time period. Um, you know, that's just the classic write-off. It really that's is the like response. That's that's the response you get from a man. Yeah, right? you if see, you woman. see gaslighting in all of these films. Oh yeah, sure. All sure. Of these films are so full of gaslighting, and and I will say, horror films are kind of classic for not even just gaslighting women. Like anybody yeah. that witnesses anything supernatural in any horror movie has a bevy of people coming to them going, I don't know, you really sure you saw that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, maybe right. it's just stress. Maybe you're just stressed <laughs> out about your job or something. <laughs> Sleep it off. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I, I'm much more of the school of, I know what I saw. <laughs> right. Right, right. But, uh, but yeah, so, I, you know, the the effects in this film, you know, I, like, let's let's get into that. Like, what do, what do you think about the, the overall effects of the film? Well, um... The the makeup is fine, so I, I you you were just talking about that, and that makes sense, and and that's great. Like the 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 furniture moving around the room and all of that stuff um, is kind of I don't know. In in 1973, was it hokey? Probably not. It was it, it was probably like ooh, kind of scary in 1973. But you know, I didn't I wasn't even born yet. So by the time you get to me and you. You know that kind of stuff is is a little hokey. It's it's a little um, kind of even when we were watching like House on Haunted Hill, yeah. right? And and you saw, you know the skeleton, yeah, the puppet is, skeleton, is, the puppet skeleton is moving closer to the woman, and she has all day and night to just turn around and see where she's at and casually just walk away. Like she could have she could have done that. Um, you know, kind of the same thing. It's furniture moving around the room. It's like all that stuff. It's it's a little, um, it's a little silly. But um, and the and the the pea soup thing is just kind of gross. Um, <laughs> they're they're I don't know. They're they're fine. I like the um, 
at the end of the movie, they really set that the the way they built that set where it's it feels cold, like you can feel the cold in the room. Um, <coughs> I will say that. Um, yeah, they, they, they of all the hokey stuff that they did do in this movie, which again, it's 1973, so I don't want to come down too hard on it. But I will say that those last 20 minutes with Marin and Karis, and they're in the room, and the room is cold, is freezing cold. You. F- you feel that you're like, oh my goodness! You almost want to run into your room and put a, a scarf and a hat on, because uh, you really do feel it. So they did a great job with that. Um, the voice, you know, um, the voice effect, you know, with Reagan and using the voiceover and everything—that's great. Um, but other than that, yeah, yeah the the okay the, the the effect of the cold um that actually they spent a bunch of money the money the movie went over budget it made it made all the money back but it went way over budget um william friedkin never saw a budget that he didn't want to smash through and so they paid a a, a per, like a, a guy a company to come in and refrigerate that set so that you could actually see their breath and the funny part was when they would turn the lights on and he tried to have like, he wanted all the lighting to look like it was natural. He didn't want like your common movie lighting. Um, but he wanted certain shots to look a certain way cause he wanted to play with light and shadow. And so for some of the scenes, even though it's supposed to be like a lamp light, he wanted it to be more intense. So they would use like a regular set light to get that intensity. Well, mm-hmm they would refrigerate it to a certain point, but you can't refrigerate it too much or else then like, you know, when you're on the set the whole time, it's going to like, people are going to start to get hypothermia. So they would refrigerate it to the point where you could see their breath. Then they would turn the lights on to shoot the shot. And after three minutes, the lights would heat up the air too much and you would lose the breath effect. So they could only shoot three minutes at a time during those scenes. Wow. Yeah. It took them days. It took them days to get that, the the exorcism sequence done right. because of that um but yeah i mean like it it's it's so for me like especially the the voice and uh william friedkin tells a great story about meredith mccambridge and how um he he when he finally like figured out like i want like in this voice, he said, I don't want a man's voice, but I don't want a very obviously girl's voice. I want mm-hmm. something that could be a man or a woman. And Meredith mm-hmm. McCambridge was this like kind of classic Hollywood actress. She'd been in a bunch of stuff, Westerns and things. And she had a very, a fairly deep alto voice and sounded kind of androgynous. And he was like, that's kind of what I want. So he went to her and he's like, here's what I'm going for. And he had like a guy that he tried first that had kind of a deep growly voice, but it didn't work for him. And he's, but he played that for her. Like, this is kind of what I want. And she go, but I want your voice as that. And mm-hmm. she said, okay, if you want me to sound like that, she says, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a recovering alcoholic. She says to get there, I'm going to have to drink booze. I'm going to have to smoke cigarettes. Smoke cigarettes. I'm going to have to swallow raw eggs. And she said, I'm willing to do that, but then you got to do everything else I want that I ask of you. And he says, okay, what's that? And she said, I have two friends who are priests that I want with me in the recording booth. 
at all times. She said, then I want you to tie my hands behind my back. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna. i sit in a chair. I want you to tie my hands behind my back and then I'm going to squat in the chair. So to the point where I'm just feeling some a, a little constant pain. And she said, if you do those things, I'll do it. And and then I they I'll probably offered her a crap ton of money too, <laughs> but yeah. But so she went into the recording studio and she recorded all that stuff. And that like what you hear is not her normal speaking voice. She has a, a deeper female voice, but that's not like the way she talks normal. Yeah. Um. She got all that growly, raspy, everything in it. And she he said uh, she would even do those like these sighing noises where she would get like three different notes, like she was doing like, you know, uh, Mongolian throat singing or something. Oh my goodness. And William Friedkin said they would finish the recording session. They would untie her hands from behind her back, get her out of the chair, and she would go over to the two priests and just collapse into their arms. And they would have to basically minister to her. You know? Mm -hmm. because And because she was saying all these things, you know, let Jesus fuck you and, you know all these horrible, horrible, nasty things. Uh, she was a lapsed Catholic herself, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and she would just collapse into the, her two priest friends' arms and just, you know, weep after no. a session. Like, she put herself through Aww. hell. And then she didn't even get, um, it wasn't until after some legal wrangling, she didn't even get credit. Like, she's not even, wasn't even credited originally as the voice of Pazuzu, you know. Mm. Yeah. But... Now this effect, wow. I I don't know how they. I, th- I I remember him saying how they get the words when the words help me, show up. I do remember it now. Um, they actually it's played in reverse. Mm. They had a latex thing with the words bubbled up on the. And then they they pushed them down or whatever, they or they blended it. them in. They heated they, it. They blew it. on it with a with a hair dryer. And as okay. it heated the latex, the latex smoothed back out. So, but when played in reverse, it looks like they bubble up on her skin, and Reagan's trying to scratch out from the inside. Help me, right? Yeah, yep. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I mean, man, this thing just—I don't know. I just, I, 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 um. I don't want to say I'm tortured watching this movie because that's a little too far. Um, but I really have to be in the mood to watch this. I mean, it, it really is. a It's a meditation on faith and what you believe and, yeah. you know, concepts of good and evil. You know, it really is unlike... Um, there's a great movie. Well, I like it. It's kind of it's kind of goofy, but it's a there's a movie that came out not too long ago within the last couple of years. Uh, you can find it on Shutter. It's called The Cleansing Hour, and that's about a guy mm. who who starts like a streaming uh, channel where he's supposed to be a priest who performs exorcisms live on the web, and. That is much more action-packed. There's all the crazy effects, and there's you know there's people getting set on fire, and there's you know all this uh, all this crazy crazy stuff happens. Lots of action. 
like there and I like that movie. I like the cleansing hour. But it's like that's you have that which is for like if you want just a balls out you know possession fest. If you just if you want something to happen, <laughs> you can watch that. If you want like a deeper meditation on good versus evil and and mm. things like that, then you can watch The Exorcist. I don't. <laughs> I really don't. Well, now let good me versus ask- good good no 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 good versus evil. I can watch uh, Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask well, you. Well, Lewis so- represents the good, and Michael represents the evil in a very you know simple way. So in the beginning, I kind of talked about how. <laughs> Like the the basic concepts of like otherworldly evil breaking into this world, doing these things that it, it is kind of akin to like Lovecraftian Cthulhu type stuff, um, minus tentacle beasts and things. What would you like? Hmm. Now I know that you like that. You would like something like that more than something like mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. So what about that stuff draws your interest more than this kind of slow meditation on good and evil? It's it, it's well, I can I can get into the good and evil game like I'm not I'm not it's not uh, it's not even I, I don't know. I, I think you know what I think part of me is maybe um, I grew up. Just I grew up in this. Like I, my dad was Catholic, and my mom was Lutheran. But if you know anything about being Lutheran, you might as well be Catholic. It's Catholic light, yeah. It's just <laughs> it's, it's, seriously, it's Catholic. And they're and they're they're very strict. Like they're it, Lutherans can be very strict. It's not like as opposed to like. Um, Later in life, I joined the Moravian Church for for a few years, and that was just a lot of fun. And and just talk it was, about it was a, just fun. Well, it was a, it was it was it was it was very it's it made very Jesus welcoming. Fun. It's well, what I'm trying to say is it was very welcoming and upbeat and positive and happy. Whereas the, this shit that I grew up with. This is the shit I grew up with, where it's not positive and upbeat and happy. It's do this or you'll be burning in hell for eternity. And I, I, I love Max von Sydow in this in this movie. I think he's brilliant, the actor Max yeah. von Sydow. But Father Marin represents like the shit again right. that just gives me bad memories growing up. Like right. that's the like. Mm-hmm. You can tell you yeah. can tell that he cares, but his he his re- reliance is on the ritual and his reliance. But it's is it's on... it's all about it's all about the church and the faith and right. and the the Old Testament and and all that fucking crap. And Sorry. and actually, Max von Sydow uh, had a problem with this specific part right here where he screams, "I cast you out." Um. He was having trouble with the scene, and William Friedkin uh, took him aside, and he's like, "What's what's going on?" Because it is the great Max von Sydow, you know. Um, even even at this point, because he looks older in the film, that's a great makeup he's they did on him. Forty four years old, exactly. He's as old as I am now. Yeah. In that in that this film, and 
he they made him look like he is 70, 70 whatever, yeah, you know yep yeah and but so he took him aside and he, uh, William Friedkin took him aside and he's like you know what's going on because uh, I'm not this isn't like you I'm not feeling that and Max von Sydow says well I'm just I'm having trouble I can't really find the 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 motivation you know I, I uh, to be big and to be you know kind of powerfully I cast you out and all this kind of stuff so uh, yeah William Friedkin takes Max von Sydow aside asks him what's going on what you know why are we having trouble and finally when they get down to it Max von Sydow says I think it's because I just don't believe in God mm. and William Friedkin being kind of a, a bit of a callous director inside his mind mm. says to himself like what the fuck does he mean he can't because it's called fucking acting right 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 exactly <laughs> I'm thinking of I'm thinking of who's who's the actor is it um Ian McKellen Ian McKellen yes yeah, I'm not Who really just a said, wizard I act like yeah, I'm a wizard <laughs> right exactly it's called acting act um but so he so William Friedkin says to him he goes but you played Jesus Christ in the greatest story ever told yeah. And Max von Sydow goes, yeah, but I played him as a man. And so William Friedkin, still incredulous inside his mind, uh, says, well, play him as a man. You know, do it, do it like just a, a, a man would do, you know, any, any, any common man. So then they went, and then that's when you get the very powerful shot of him with his hand raised, looking sounding powerful he's got that big max von Sydow voice and he's commanding the invading spirit and everything you know i cast you out you know and but yet the look on his face is one of uh concern uh, it would be a light word he looks like he's worried this isn't working yeah, he's That's unsure the look of on himself. His, he's, he's unsure. He looks like he's are very unsure of himself. Yeah, he's absolutely. unsure of himself as he does it, and yeah. it ends up playing great. Mm -hmm. It ends up playing great. Like, you know, the the Max von Sydow in this film is fucking amazing. <laughs> he is. He he really is. Um, again. You know the the acting in this movie is really good. It it, it really is. It, I, I I get the Oscar. I just don't like. You know it it, it doesn't scare me. Um, and I, I I guess talking this through, I found out that this movie somehow both bores the shit out of me and makes me very angry at the same time. <laughs> Well, let me let me let me see if if you can connect with this this idea, like this take on it, which mm. this is a movie about people being confronted with themselves and what they believe that just yeah. happens to be centered around a possession of a little girl. Yeah. That's how um, I, that's how I feel. I feel that I feel that the the possession Hearing that did not change Well, my no, mind no. I mean, that's that's the I I think that I think that, you know, for me, I lo I 
I really enjoy watching this film. I really appreciate a lot of things about this film, but I can totally understand why people aren't necess- why a person would not necessarily be scared by it because really it's a character study film. It, it's mm. it's about Karis. It's about Marin. It's about Chris McNeil. It's about these people, specifically about Chris McNeil, the mother, and Father Damien Karras. You know, Father Damien Karras is the main character, I totally believe. I, mm-hmm. believe. I believe if you think that Reagan's the main character, you've missed the point of the film. Um, I think he's the main character of the film, but him and Ellen Burstyn really are the two people who the movie is most about. No, absolutely. She has, you know... Just as much screen time as as right. um, Jason right. and, Mellon does. And so you're really watching a film about these two people dealing with complex emotions and thoughts and events and everything sure. else. And really, sure. it's, and really it's just that the possession of the little girl is the catalyst mm-hmm. for that. And so... It, that mm. That's where I'm... What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to connect... Mm with yep. what you're going for, but also saying that that's actually the reason I like the movie. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to be able to go to bed tonight until I turn like Freddy on. Or, <laughs> or, I might turn, I might turn chopping mall on <laughs> just to kind of cleanse my palate a little bit. But, um, but so, I mean, uh, on a, on a bigger note here, before we, we get to the end of the podcast, um, because we are doing this as a, a tie-in. We didn't announce this uh, before. This is going to be a tie-in episode because we're about to come back off of a hiatus. Uh, my wife Jenny and I uh, with our show Liminal Unlimited. And we decided uh, because we decided to do this episode of Nosferatu Dudes because of the death of William Friedkin happening just uh, last month. And right. this and next month, Believer comes out. Right. On October 6th, I think it is. It was originally mm-hmm. going to, get this, it was originally going to be October 13th, Friday the 13th, in the month of October. Right. But but it, it got bumped. It got bumped um, because they didn't want to go up against Taylor fucking Swift. Because her Eras Tour concert movie is coming out on Friday the 13th. That's why they moved it up. They It was wow, originally that's announced. How much, that's how much confidence they have in it. <laughs> there you go <laughs> there you go well they, right i mean they no, originally no, had the october 13th friday the 13th spot and then she announced her movie coming out on that day I, and they moved it up a week and i and i could be way off on this i could be way way <laughs> off believe me because i uh um here in new england taylor swift had uh she when she does gillette because she lives she has a house in rhode island so she lives yeah. in westerly or whatever she does in Gillette and it's like shut down city. I just saw Bruce Springsteen at Gillette packed house. Great show. Whole nine. Like Gillette was bumping, but the traffic was nowhere near (laughs) what it was when Taylor Swift was up here. So I get, she is a juggernaut of a musical act. However, concert movies, even no matter who it is, should not be don't should not be able to yeah big marquee horror movies to have to bump their date 
exactly. Yeah. It's in in October on a Friday the thirteenth. Like right. people should be going. The to fact see that the you Exorcist, were afraid of Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift says everything that needs to be said. Ex- right, exactly. <laughs> Which means I'm gonna. I don't think ev- they would have put Evil Dead Rise up against Taylor fucking Swift. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no offense against Taylor Swift. Jenny Jenny but, says Jenny says Taylor Swift mu- music is for girls that give toothy head. <laughs> oh snap! <laughs> did she say that, or did you just make that up? No, no, she she actually read that online and and agreed with it. <laughs> oh wow! Oh boy! But. Uh, but yeah, and so I guess uh, so. Yeah, so <laughs> we're so... we're doing this as a tie-in with Liminal Unlimited. Uh, on Liminal Unlimited, we Jenny and I talk about uh, UFOs, hauntings, Bigfoot, anything weird, anything on the periphery. That's why we call it Liminal. Right. It's anything on the periphery of reality um, that we think a lot of that shit is is probably real. We don't think that maybe it happens as often as um, you know. Uh, Discovery Channel or Travel Channel or the Sci-Fi Channel would like everybody to think it does, um, but we we think that there's good possibilities that weird shit happens all the time, and so our tie-in episode uh, coming back off of hiatus is going to be all about possessions and exorcisms, and kind of uh-huh. talking about is it real, could it happen, talking about famous cases, not so famous cases. Um, Everything that that kind of goes into it, a big general, uh, you know, gumbo of demonic exorcism shit. And um, so I don't know, Brad, to kind of to kind of round it out, uh, (laughs) moving into that episode. Yeah. What is your take on the possibility of things like demonic possession? Like, forget if exorcism. Zero point zero. Zero point (laughs) zero. You think it's never happened it's never happened, real. never will happen. Not it's a all thing. psychiatric. It's just, yes, it's schizophrenia. It's whatever. I, um, it's embellishment, all of that. It, it, Let's, to put a, to put a button on it, you know, we were. Getting... I also don't believe in dream <laughs> demons or hockey mask, you know, killers that can come back to life over and over and over again. But I watched those movies. Yeah. Oh, and, and I, I will say, I will say that I'm, I'm a, the type of person that, um, I, I, we kind of opened this up with saying that I don't, even though I have some strange beliefs and things, I don't believe in literal demons and I don't believe in a literal devil seeking out the ruin of individual people and all this kind of stuff. Do I feel that that somewhere out there, you know, in realms that I don't know about, did someone ever confront something really supernatural that they didn't understand? I think it's possible, but but uh, something that you just said it, something that they didn't understand. Yeah. Just because you didn't understand it, it doesn't mean it's out otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, you know, and, and not only that, but, you know, uh, I think that, um, I think that what's more important is good stories that cover that kind of thing. Uh, and even though the exorcist is definitely not, uh, a perfect film and it's not a perfect story, 
uh, about it. I think that uh, it has a place because it opened the door for people to start really talking about the big picture good versus evil stuff that maybe wasn't necessarily discussed before that film came out. You know, um, even things like that, like Rosemary's Baby, you know, in this kind of 70s where you had a lot of movies dealing with that stuff. Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, it was the 70s became a time. And I think because of what was going on, because of Vietnam, because of Watergate, because of all these uh, institutions and things that people trusted, people trusted Mm -hmm. in them. And they're all crumbling down and everybody's scrambling to try and find something to believe in and something to hold on to. And so everybody's left questioning if the things that I thought were good are bad and the things that I thought were bad turn out to only maybe be bad by perspective, then what the fuck do I know to be true or what can I hang on to? What can I say I know for sure? What can I be certain about? They want Mm. certainty. And movies like this, even though it may not be a perfect narrative, movies like that can help people start to work through some of that stuff and be like, okay, well, I know what good and evil are, you know, and I just have to maybe be better at identifying it. And if I can be better at identifying it, maybe I can feel okay. You know, things like that. So would I, would this be my first choice to go to for, you know, um, a scare fest? Absolutely not. I still Mm -hmm. do love turning it on, like on a dark and stormy night, turn all the lights out and get creeped out by the slow progression of evil creeping in, you know, I like that. Um, but I know, I know that it's not for everybody and it's definitely, like I said, not a perfect, a perfect story. Um, but yeah, but I I like Rosemary's baby too. And Rosemary's baby is like, um, a really slow creeping film. And I, I, it was like a generation of films like that. There were a generation of films like that that came out in the seventies that were just these slow, slow creep outs. But I've done slow. Like, like I said before, like, um, Rob zombies. Um, um, Oh, Oh, the Lord, Lord, Lord of Salem is, is a, it's a slow burn. It really is. It's, it's slow, but it's entertaining enough that you're not falling asleep in the middle of it. You know, Um, and again, uh, little things like we talked about it earlier in the podcast about the score and stuff like not having any, just having it be such a quiet, it's just a quiet movie. You would have liked at least like a little an hour score and 40 to help, minutes. help the tension. Something to, yeah, yeah, something like we talk about, you know, John Carpenter using Give rising and using falling music. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and they didn't do that. They just, it's just a very quiet movie with dialogue no one gets too excited (laughs) you know until like until an hour and 20 minutes into the movie and then all you know kind of hell starts to break loose and there's a little bit there's a little flare-up with the uh the initial um stuff that happens um you know in the bedroom and everything and then 
and then really it's the exorcism at the end is, yeah. is really what you're what you're paying attention and, and to. And to be so, honest, that's the part that everybody remembers. That's the part that everybody. It's the only onto. part anybody ever shows, except for when she walks into the room and pees, you know, on the floor yeah. during the during the dinner party. They they show those two things every time that they do anything with the Exorcist. Like that's it's yeah. basically it's the exorcism at the end. It's the last twenty minutes of the movie, but it's a two hour movie. And I just noticed on Prime because you know we talk about how we put the movie on. Um, there's a director's cut. There's a longer version of this. Yeah, yeah, because it, there's some it it works in. There's like a conversation between Marin and Karis that work through some of the themes of the film and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It, it amplifies it a little more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, stuff that William that the studio forced William Friedkin to cut out when they released it in theaters. Um, yeah. That's that's actually I think the one that I have on DVD is the director's cut. Um, yeah, but. So, if you feel like this was a down episode... It's like, a bit of a down and angry and <laughs> sad episode. If you feel like this was a bit of a down episode, don't worry. We're going we're gonna to come back to some tried and true fun. Uh, directed by John Landis, but I'll tell you something. Innocent Blood is a fun 90s vampire flick. It's, it stars Anthony LaPaglia, uh, Don Rickles... And uh, I, I, who's the star? Who's the true star? Robert Loggia. <laughs> Robert Loggia. Hey, Eddie I'm a vampire. <laughs> but uh, this so is me playing a vampire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's V for vampire. Robert Loggia. <laughs> Coming in October, we're going to also have lots of fun because we're going to do some Halloween feeling vibes, and we're going to do. Uh, a monster mash episode all about monster Definitely. mashup films, Dracula versus Frankenstein, Freddy versus Jason. It's going to be all yep. about monster mashups. Um, are they kitschy? Fuck yes. Are they fun? Fuck, fuck yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and then we're going to cover leading into Halloween, uh, our youth are the favorite of our youth monster squad. So yeah. on that note from on me that note, and me, Thank you for listening. Remember, the broadcast is coming from inside the house. (laughs) I did it! You did it! I'm so proud of you. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.